Wow. I just hope you're not expecting me to get up here and dance. <laughs> that would not be a pretty picture. Happy Purim! Wow. Well, Lord, we thank you for Purim. Lord, we thank you for this joyful season. How many enjoyed all the webcasts this week? I mean, there was such incredible revelation coming forth. I mean, it was every kind of, every kind of teaching and prophetic release and just everything. So, uh, Chuck, thank you for putting all that together. So this morning I want to teach about Purim, but I want to teach about Purim from a different angle than we've usually seen it. And so the message this morning is Mordecai, the watchman, positioned to overcome. So Lord, open our hearts to see what you're saying to us, to understand what you're doing, to understand how you want to use us as we move forward into the new season. And so I want to welcome you to our celebration of the Feast of Purim. Purim is a time of joy because Purim means it is time to experience the favor of the king. Not only that, it's the time to see enemies turn back and curses broken. Now, we usually think of Purim as the story of Esther. After all, it's in the book that's called the Book of Esther. And Esther was a young Jewish woman who became queen of the Persian Empire and saved her people from destruction. And Esther is certainly a key player in the story, but this year Chuck surprised me by shifting the focus to Mordecai. And you know, when I've taught on Esther before and I've read Esther, it's all been about Esther and Mordecai is just sort of in the background. But when I read the book of Esther with my focus on Mordecai, I was amazed. It became a whole new book. Because in many ways, Purim is actually the story of Mordecai. Yeah, One writer called Mordecai the mastermind behind Esther's rise to power and the subsequent victory over the evil Haman. Another writer said, few have done more to earn a nation's lasting gratitude than Mordecai to whom under God the Jewish people owe their preservation. And see, when you read through the book of Esther, Mordecai is always there. Often he's behind the scenes, and yet at every key point, he is the one that moves God's purposes forward. Because Mordecai was a watchman. Now what is a watchman? Well, this is pretty easy. A watchman is a person who keeps watch. That means he keeps vigil, he stands guard. You know, in the ancient world, some watchmen stood guard over the crops to protect them from predators and thieves. Some watchmen kept watch over the cities to protect them from military invasion. 
But watchmen were always held in high esteem because the safety and survival of everyone in the city depended on the watchmen doing their job. You know, in Song of Solomon, one of the things Solomon loved about his bride was that she had the alertness of a watchman. Uh, there's a phrase that some people read and they think, what in the world does that mean? Because he said, your nose is like the Tower of Lebanon, which looks toward the Damascus. Now that may seem strange if you don't understand what a watchtower was. See, Damascus had always been an enemy to Israel. And so the watchtower looking toward Damascus was a place to keep watch, to be aware of the enemy. And see, Solomon was not commenting on the shape of her nose. He was saying, you're like a watchtower. You are alert. You are on guard against the enemy. And that was one of the things Solomon loved about her. See, watchmen were characterized by two things. First, they had to be vigilant. They had to be alert. They had to be aware. But then they also had to be vocal. They had to declare the things that they had seen. Now, there are several Hebrew words for a watchman. One is tzafah, and it means to lean forward, to peer into the distance. And see, that's what a watchman did. He took his post on the city wall and continually scanned the horizon for any sign of the enemy. Hour after hour, he watched. Day after day, months went by. He saw nothing significant happening, but he could not let his guard down because one day the enemy would come. And if the watchman was not leaning forward, peering into the distance, the city would be lost. Another word for a watchman is shamar. That means to watch over, to put a protective hedge around, to defend or to protect. And see, Shamar was the word <coughs> used in God's instructions to Adam and Eve in the garden. Genesis 2.15 says, Then the Lord took them in, put him in the garden of Eden to cultivate and to keep it. The word keep is Shamar, to watch over, to put a protective hedge around, to defend, to protect. See, Adam and Eve were watchmen over the garden. Now, why did the garden need a watchman? Because there was an enemy there that was plotting to do them in. See, they were not in the garden just to plant pretty flowers. They were to stand guard over their inheritance to protect it. Now, when Adam and Eve failed to shamar the garden... God sent the cherubim to Shamar the garden. He used the very same word. They stood watch, they stood guard over the garden. See, watchmen are very important to God. You know, that's how God describes himself in Jeremiah chapter one. In Jeremiah one, God tells Jeremiah, I am on watch to carry out my word. God is a watchman. And God calls us to watch also. 1 Peter 5.8 says, be alert, be on watch, because your enemy, the devil, roams like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. 
Now to understand how Mordecai was a watchman, let's briefly look at the story of Purim. Now the story of Purim takes place in ancient Persia. Uh, Persia at that time was the greatest empire in the world. It ruled over the territory of Israel and it held the Jewish people as exiles and as captives. Persia's king Ahasuerus, also known as Xerxes, was the most powerful man in the world. He ruled everything from India to Ethiopia in 127 provinces. Now, in the third year of his reign, Ahasuerus held a banquet for all of his princes and attendants in the massive citadel of his capital city of Susa. And on the seventh day of the celebration, he called his queen, Vashti, to join him at the feast so all of his guests could see her beauty. But Vashti refused to come. Enraged by her refusal, the king announced that he was removing Vashti from her position as queen. He then announced he would search the empire for beautiful young women, women who could, so he could choose a new queen. Now we're told there was in the city a Jew named Mordecai. It can also be pronounced Mordecai. Several different ways to spell it, but it's the same name. And it says he was an exile from Jerusalem. We're told that Mordecai sat at the gate of the city. Now it used to be when I read about Mordecai sitting at the gate of the city, what I pictured was this. I pictured Mordecai as a beggar dressed in rags sitting on the ground beside the city gate. But then I learned some things about city gates. See, a city gate was more than just a door. The main gate of a city was usually a formidable structure with two or more stories and a lot of rooms inside. Just inside the gate was the marketplace where merchants brought their wares through the gate to sell. But also at the gate there were seats where the rulers of the city would gather. See, the gates were a place of rule. That's why when Jesus talks about the church, the, the ecclesia, he said, I will build my ecclesia. And the gates of hell will not prevail against, he's talking about the rulers of hell. The church will have power to overcome all of the rulers, all the gates of hell. And so to have a seat at the gate in the ancient world meant Mordecai was an official. He was someone in authority. Some people believe Mordecai may have been the finance minister of the Persian Empire. Now Mordecai had a young cousin named Esther who was very beautiful. And when her father and mother died, Mordecai decided to raise Esther as his own daughter. And following the king's order, Esther was one of the many young women from across the empire who were forcibly taken from their homes and brought into the king's harem. And in the harem, Esther went through a year of preparation for a one-night audience with the king. Now, when the time came for Esther to go into the king, the king was more attracted to her than to any of the other girls, and she won his favor. And so the, the king set a royal crown on her head and made Esther the new queen. 
Now the king had promoted a man named Haman to be his prime minister. Haman was a proud man, loved it. Everybody would bow down to him when he passed by. But Mordecai refused to bow to him. And when Haman saw that Mordecai would not kneel, he was enraged. Haman knew that Mordecai was a Jew, so he looked for a way to destroy all Jews throughout the empire. And he cast lots to determine the best day and the best month to take action. The word in Hebrew for lots is Purim. That's where we get the name of the feast. And the day selected was in the month of Adar. That's March in our calendar. And so Haman said to the king, there's a race of people in your empire. Their laws are different from other nations and they refuse to obey the king. It's not in the king's interest to let them live. So Haman asked the king to issue a decree that all of the Jews be destroyed. And the king agreed. He gave him his signet ring, said, do as you like with this people. And the signet ring gave Haman authority to issue decrees in the name of the king. But Haman used it for a perverse purpose. He issued a decree for the destruction of all Jews. And by Haman's decree, dispatches were sent to all of the king's provinces with the order to destroy, kill, and annihilate all the Jews in a single day, the 13th day of Adar, and then to plunder their goods. Now Mordecai, sitting at the gate, heard everything that was happening. He was positioned right where God wanted him to be. And he came and told Esther all, the, all that was happening. And he pleaded with Esther to help. But Esther was terrified. She said, if I go to the king without being called and he does not raise his scepter, I will be killed. See, Esther understood some things. She was the king's favorite now, but that could change in a day. Haman was the king's highest official. He was given his position by the king. He was trusted by the king. He was acting with the full authority of the king himself to speak against Haman could bring a death sentence. But see, Mordecai understood some things also. He said, don't think that you'll be spared just because you're in the king's house. If you don't help, rescue will come another way, but you and your family will perish. And who knows but that you have come into the kingdom for such a time as this. And that word was a revelation of Esther's prophetic destiny. Now for Esther, the thought of doing what God was asking her terrified her. In the natural realm, it seemed foolish. Esther had to go where she was frightened to go. She had to say what she was frightened to say. She had to patiently wait for the opportune time. Esther knew all the Jews had been placed under a death sentence, and to make her appeal to the king, she would have to reveal her own identity as a Jew. And all she had to stand on was the knowledge of God's prophetic destiny for her life. But Esther made her decision. Esther said, gather together all the Jews in the city and fast for me. 
Do not eat or drink for three days. And when this is done, I'll go into the king. And if I perish, I perish. And so Mordecai went and carried out all these instructions. And on the third day, Esther put on her royal robes and stood in front of the king's hall. The king was sitting on his throne. And when he saw Esther, he was pleased. And he held out to her his gold scepter. And he asked, what is it, Esther? What is your request? Even up to half the kingdom, it will be given you. But Esther sensed the timing was not right. Now, let me just say, even if you're doing what God has told you to do, pay attention to the timing. There's a right time, there's a wrong time. Esther knew this was not the time. Esther said, well, let the king and Haman come to a banquet I've prepared. So they both went to Esther's banquet, and as they were drinking, the king again asked Esther, what's your request? Even up to the half, half the kingdom, it will be granted. But Esther still sensed the timing was not right. So she said, well, let both of you come tomorrow to a banquet I'll prepare. Then I'll answer the king's question. So Haman went out that day happy. When, but when he saw Mordecai sitting at the gate, he was filled with rage. And Haman boasted to his wife that he was the only one the queen invited to the banquet with the king. But then he added, it gives me no satisfaction as long as I see that Jew Mordecai sitting at the gate. His wife said, well, have a gallows built. And asked the king in the morning to have Mordecai hanged on it. That suggestion delighted Haman, so he had a gallows built. But that night, the king could not sleep. So he ordered the records of his reign to be brought in and read to him. Must have been an exciting reign. Read me about my reign, it'll put me right to sleep. But it was recorded there that Mordecai had once exposed a plot to assassinate the king, but was never rewarded for it. And so the next morning when Haman got there, the king said, what should be done for the man the king delights to honor? And of course, Haman is thinking, who is there the king would rather honor than me? He said, well, put a royal robe on him and a royal crown on his head and seat him on a royal horse and let a prince lead him through the city proclaiming, this is the man the king delights to honor. Go, the king commanded him. Do just as you have suggested for Mordecai the Jew. And so on the day when he had intended to kill Mordecai, he had to lead him through the city praising him. You know, God has a good sense of humor. And yet for Mordecai, the worst was yet to come. So the king and Haman came to the banquet that evening. And the king again said to Esther, what is your request? Even to half the kingdom, it shall be done. Now Esther had embraced God's call in her life. And because she understood her prophetic destiny, she had risked everything to come before the king. And she had waited patiently till she felt the timing was right. But now came the hard part. It was time to do the one thing God had asked her to do, 
to reveal her true identity and plead for the life of her people. And so Esther answered the king, if it pleases the king, let my life be spared and the lives of my people, for we have been sold to be killed and annihilated. The king said, who has done this? And I think Esther looked right at Haman and said, a foe and an enemy, this vile Haman. Well, then Haman became terrified before the king and queen. The king got up in rage, went out. Haman stayed behind to beg the queen for his life. But as the king was returning, Haman lost his balance. He fell onto the couch where the queen was reclining. And the king said, will he even molest the queen while she is with me in the house? And an assistant spoke up. Well, there's a a gallows standing at Haman's house. He made it to kill Mordecai, who defended the king. Hang him on it, the king said. So they hung Haman on his own gallows. Then the king sent out a new decree granting the Jews in every city the right to assemble and protect themselves and to destroy anyone that would attack them. And Esther 9.1 says this, says, so in the month the enemies of the Jews had hoped to overpower them, the opposite happened. That is called an unexpected reversal. God loves to make unexpected reversals for his people. He wants to reverse all of Satan's evil plans against you. So that's the story of Purim, but we need to see behind all of these events was Mordecai. What made Mordecai special was that he had a watchman's heart We see it all the way through the story. Mordecai watched over Esther. When Esther's parents died, he took her into his home as his own daughter to watch over her and care for her. When she was taken to the harem, he gave her careful instructions on how to behave and what to do. While she was in the harem, we're told he walked back and forth in front of the courtyard of the harem every day to learn how Esther was and what was happening to her. She was his daughter. He loved her, and so he was in intercession for her as she was in the harem. And after she became queen, Mordecai was careful to stay in communication with her. So he was a watchman over Esther, but he also watched over the king. You know, positioned at the city gate, he heard everything that was going on, and seated at the palace gate, he overheard a plot to kill the king. So he went to Esther, let her know, and the plot was thwarted. But he not only watched over Esther and over the king, he watched over the Jewish people. When he heard of Haman's plot, he sent word to Esther and urged her to act. And then when Haman's plot was overthrown, Mordecai was given Haman's position. And it was Mordecai who actually wrote the decree that saved the Jews. 
by countering Haman's evil decree. And then we're told it was out of respect for Mordecai that the Persian provincial, uh, provincial officials assisted in protecting the Jews. And the book of Maccabees, Purim, is actually called the Day of Mordecai. Mordecai was the one God used to make it all happen. But Mordecai not only watched over Esther, not only watched over the king, not only watched over the Jewish people, he watched over his own family line. See, Mordecai's family history had been tarnished by a terrible incident. Mordecai was a descendant of the house of Saul, Israel's first king. But Saul suffered the humiliation of having the kingship torn from his family because of his disobedience. In 1 Samuel 15, God had commanded Saul to attack the Amalekites and utterly destroy them, but Saul disobeyed. That was an event was a humiliation for every member of the family. Down through the years, they, uh, every member of the family knew they were supposed to be the royal line. They were supposed to be royalty in Israel, but they lost that position because of Saul. But see, Mordecai vindicated his family by finally overcoming one of Israel's oldest enemies, the Amalekites. Now, why were the Amalekites important? See, Israel had an enemy that always wanted to destroy them. They were called the Amalekites. The Amalekites hated the Jews, and they always came to keep, steal, kill, and destroy. They attacked Israel when they came out of Egypt. They attacked them from the rear, picking off the weak and the stragglers as Israel was traveling through the wilderness. Israel finally had to confront them in battle, but it was a very difficult battle. It was not an easy fight. But when Moses stood on the hill over the battlefield with his hands raised in intercession, the Amalekites were defeated. But then when Israel was living in the land, the Amalekites attacked again. In Gideon's day, they joined with the Midianites to plunder Israel's harvest. God gave Gideon an amazing strategy to defeat them. But then in David's day, the, Amal the Amalekites attacked again. They attacked Ziklag and took David's fa family as captives. But David rallied his men. And they pursued the Amalekites and recovered everything that had been taken. And then finally in 1 Samuel 15 said, I've had it with the Amalekites. And God told Saul to attack the Amalekites and completely destroy them. But Saul disobeyed. Saul spared the Amalekite king, Agag. Because of Saul's disobedience in not destroying the Amalekites, God took the kingship away from Saul's line. Now, all over the years, Israel learned how to resist the Amalekites but it was not until Purim that the Amalekites were finally overcome. See, after Purim, the Amalekites never oppressed Israel again. Now, why is that? Because of Mordecai. See, Haman 
was an Amalekite. He was a descendant of Agag, the king Saul failed to kill. Mordecai was a descendant of Saul's family. So the book of Esther is really a rematch of 1 Samuel 15. It's a battle between the house of Saul and the Amalekite house of Agag. And an Amalekite was once again trying to destroy the Jews, but this time Mordecai was watching. And the Amalekites were finally overcome. See, Mordecai was a watchman. He had a watchman's heart. And because of that, he recovered all the royal honor that the house of Saul had lost. I love Esther 8.15. Now think about this. His line was supposed to be the royal line. It was supposed to be where the kings came from with the royal crowns and the royal robes and all of those things. But Esther 8.15 says this, So Mordecai went out from the presence of the king in a royal robe of violet and white with a large crown of gold and a garment of fine linen and purple and the city of Susa shouted and rejoiced. What Saul lost, Mordecai regained. Esther 9, 4 says Mordecai was great in the king's house. News about him spread throughout the provinces. He became greater and greater. See, in Mordecai, the shame of Saul's house was removed. See, those who walk with the heart of a watchman, God will honor. And God wants to give you a watchman's heart also. So ask God to give you a watchman's anointing. Ask God what he is calling you to watch over, where he has positioned you to watch over his purposes. And here is something that every watchman needs to know. Because Mordecai watched over the things that concern God. God watched over the things that concerned him. God greatly exalted him. And so look how the book of Esther closes. And this is what really convinced me that this is a book about Mordecai. Because the book ends this way in chapter 10. A full account of the greatness of Mordecai, whom the king had promoted, is written in the annals of the kings of Media and Persia. Mordecai the Jew was second in rank only to King Xerxes, preeminent among the Jews and held in high esteem by his many fellow Jews because he worked for the good of his people and he spoke up for the welfare of all the Jews. Lord, we thank you for watchmen. Lord, we thank you for the watchmen among us. We thank you, the call of watchmen on each one listening here. Lord, show us, give us the heart of a watchman and show us what you've called us to stand watch over. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Wow. Is that awesome? That was awesome. Now, two things I want you to remember. Shanthini, first of all, raise your hand. You start your chaplaincy training this week. We send you forth to do that. Now, uh, you are favored for a reason. 
Esther was beautiful for a reason. Look at somebody next to you and say, you're pretty for a reason. You're not pretty just because you're supposed to be pretty. Now, you're also positioned for a reason, just like Mordecai. Look at somebody and say, your place is important. And I love what Keith said today, how unique we are. Let me show you a picture. This is who you need to be this week. I send you out to be in the world, but not of the world. Now, let me say this. Kook, you and Rebecca, come stand here with me. They went out last night with a team to the strip clubs and for probably the first time in history, what did y'all create? Well, normally we don't stop in the, on the floor because they're working. And as we're going out, a group of women came up. And one of the women that we knew, she said, I need you to pray for me. So we're like, okay, we'll pray. And she works for Fidelity. And she wanted some prayer for God to open a door. So we prayed for her. And we looked to the right. And there was a prayer line. A women wanting prayer. And it wasn't just for their family. It wasn't just for general stuff. I mean, one had torment in the mind, and one of them, her boyfriend, had been murdered. The other one, she goes, I just want God. I just want God. And Patty and Sungbin ministered to her. And the one whose husband or boyfriend who had been killed, she said, no one has ever prayed for me. And she was about 30 years old. She said, nobody's ever said a prayer for me before. And, uh, and, you know, um, this is one of the clubs that uh, a lot of the dancers are Hispanic from Cuba. And uh, my Spanish is very, was very rusty. So I'm like, Lord, I'm desperate. You can use a, a, a donkey, you can use me. So I called Nancy Arenas and said, woman, you got to translate some verbiage for me because Google translation doesn't work in this fast-paced environment. So anyway, so we were waiting there and at the checkout counter inside the dressing room, this woman was uh, applying for a job and I was like stumbling through and I was reading her three, John 3.16 and I said, would you like to receive the Lord? All this in Spanish. I'm trying to read this thing. And she said, okay, yes. And she grabbed my phone and started reading it reading the verbiage, confessing that she's a sinner. She wants to receive the Lord. And so we're like, you know, God can use us in any way that he can. All we have to do is say, send me, send me, send me. (laughs) I send you out to wherever the Lord wants you to go. In Jesus' name, amen. Look at two or three people and say, favor is on you.